Open up your Bibles to uh, Daniel chapter 4. The ushers are coming down front. If you don't have a Bible, if you'd raise your hand, they'd love to give you one. If you don't own a Bible, then we want you to take this as a gift. We'd love for you to uh, have this and uh, explore it, get to know Jesus. And uh, hands up high, and they'll find you. There you go. I want to start out today... um, asking you a couple of questions that are going to be a theme throughout our, our talk today in Daniel 4. One is this. Tell me this. Why, why is it that uh, most of, the, of us learn spiritual lessons the hard way? You know? And I, uh, I mess around in my garage. I work on a truck. I have a lot of fun. Uh, when I need to know something, I go to YouTube. And I watch somebody do it, and I go, oh, I can do that. That's how it works for me. Why is it when it comes to the spiritual side of life, uh-uh. I mean, you can read it. You got it. It's next to you all the time. You go to church 24 hours. But why is it the spiritual lessons come the hard way? You got a word for me? It's not on YouTube. It's not on YouTube. Let me give you a big word. It's been around since the very beginning of time. Pride. Pride. Pride is a big issue. Um, I took the liberty of writing down kind of dictionary terms for pride so um, we can find out if they have anything to say. Webster says it's an inordinate self-esteem. Um, I don't know if they mean that negatively or positively. Uh, Wikipedia, very interesting, just the structure of their explanation told me we're messed up because they did one sentence on the negative side of pride and two paragraphs on the positive side of pride. So maybe just the visual tells you that we're kind of messed up. But anyway, Wikipedia describes it this way, that the negative part anyway, that is the inflated sense of, of one's personal status or accomplishments. St. Augustine said the love of one's own excellence And uh, I love John Piper's uh, probably more precise discussion. He calls it an abandonment of childlike dependence on God in favor of godlike dependence on self. Sound good? That's a great definition. And the funny thing about pride, it's crystal for all of us when we see it in somebody else. (laughs) But it's almost impossible to spot in us, isn't it? It's the weirdest thing in the world. I can tell you that guy looks like proud, proud to me, and, and I would not notice in my life. God has a few things to say about pride, too. Let me just overwhelm you with Proverbs as the only source of, uh, of this discussion. Proverbs 6 says there are six things that God hates. Yes, seven that are detestable. The first one he starts out with is haughty eyes, pride. Proverbs 8, he says to fear the Lord is to hate evil. God says, I hate pride and arrogance. Proverbs 11, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 16, 5 and verse 18, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 21, 4, haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. Proverbs 29, A man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. Pride, folks, and you already know this, it's the center. It's the linchpin to all sin. I don't care what expression of sin you have, somewhere down in the core, some down in the core is God doesn't provide for me, I'll fix it myself. God doesn't understand my story. He doesn't understand all the circumstances surrounding my story, so I'll deal with it myself. God doesn't know what I know that I'm the exception to this particular rule. 
He doesn't have my wife. He doesn't have my husband. He doesn't have my job. He doesn't have my circumstances. So God, I know you got this stuff about pride for others, but for me, this is my set of standards, right? Pride affects everybody. Lucifer fell because he thought he was like God. Adam and Eve fell because they thought they could be like God. And every one of us have that scar, the cancer of pride. It affects everyone here. Um, We have a tendency to think if others just knew how great I was, we would have less problems. And, and that's, that's what we wrestle with. So that's the first question. Let me ask you another question. How far will God go to get his message across to you? What do you think? Yeah, let me just give it to you ahead of time, and we're going to prove it through this text today. He'll go to whatever lengths he has to. And that is a good thing because God's intention is love, but it's a painful thing because most of us have our hands tightly gripped around us. So it's going to come the hard way. You get it? And the story that we have in Daniel, Daniel 4, and if you have uh, the Bible we gave you, it's page 480. It's a story about a king who describes these two issues completely, having to learn lessons the hard way and understanding that God will do whatever he has to do to fix it. And so here's a king that went crazy, lost his mind because he wouldn't submit to God. And, And by the way, the story is 25 centuries old, but there couldn't be anything more applicable to us than this story. This isn't just a history story about some guy who was, had a bloated sense of self-worth. This is a, a direct frontal attack on God's part on the pride in our hearts. And so one of the principles we're going to learn today, the one we don't like the most, is that failure and pain are great teachers. That's, that's God's decision. God uses things like that. Um, as gifts from God to break our sinful pride and, and, and our perspective on self-confidence, to teach us lessons, big lesson, there's one God and you're not him, right? Big, huge uh, subject here in Daniel 4, and that's the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar is learning the hard way. Let me uh, just review for us where we've been in the first uh, several chapters of Daniel before we kind of tell the story here in chapter 4, but understand this, Israel's in exile, right? There have been three particular deportations that have happened to get us where we are in chapter 4. There was one in, in 605 B.C. when Daniel and his friends, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were hauled off from Israel, from Jerusalem, all the way back to Babylon. He picked the brightest and the best. He picked the upper class. He picked the wealthy, the good looking, because he was going to supplement Babylon with that wisdom and that, that enhancement. In, in 597, there was another deportation. Ezekiel and, and many others went. And then this final last one, kind of the culture that we're in in chapter 4, is, is the deportation when Zedekiah was, was the king of Judah. And if you remember the story of 2 Kings 25, there was a particular difficult circumstance. Here's the northern king of southern kingdom, Zedekiah was the king of the southern kingdom, and he refused to submit himself to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar decided to send all of his armies. So he picture this. It's like a huge movie scene. Here's Jerusalem, tiny little Jerusalem, and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Nebuchadnezzar's troops are surrounding the city. Now, they didn't just run into it and kill everybody. They camped, and they built a giant wall around Jerusalem, and they stayed there for two years waiting them out watching Israel starve to death the hard way. Zedekiah was convinced he had no way to turn. He couldn't go forward, couldn't go backwards, couldn't fix his problem, knew he was going to die either way. And, and the prophet kept telling him, no, listen, if you just walk out there and fall before Nebuchadnezzar and tell him that you were stupid and ask for grace, God will make certain that you don't die. But if you don't listen, problems are going to come. Lessons the hard way. Zedekiah 
at night runs with his troops and leaves. Nebuchadnezzar and his band of troops chase after them. They catch Zedekiah. And when they do, they take his family and put him in front of Zedekiah and they kill all of his children, all of his sons and daughters in front of his eyes and then gouge his eyes out. So the last thing he ever sees is his children die. And they cuff him and they haul him off to Babylon to be a part of Nebuchadnezzar's king collection because that's what he did. He, uh, he hoarded kings. And this king is of the country I took over here, and this is a king from the country I took over there. And by the way, this is Zedekiah. He wouldn't listen to me either. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar's last kind of activity in Jerusalem was to burn the place, to destroy the temple and haul back all the artifacts. And so that's where we find ourselves in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, if you remember, is this story about Daniel and all these, these young men taken from Israel now in Babylon. And Daniel and and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we're not going to defile ourselves. We're not going to be like the culture. We're not going to get absorbed into this thing. We're going to be set apart. We're going to be different. And they chose not to eat the king's table and and drink the king's wine. And and God blessed them. And they grew in understanding and wisdom so much so that Nebuchadnezzar recognized there was something massively different about these guys. Chapter 1. Chapter 2, there's a dream. Nebuchadnezzar has dreams. He has funky dreams. And this one was about a statue, an enormous statue head of gold, shoulders and arms of silver, kind of chest and upper thighs of bronze and legs of iron and clay. And nobody knows how to interpret it. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar threatens everyone. Tell me the story. I'm not even going to tell you the story. Tell me the dream. Tell me what it means or everybody's dying. All the wise men are dying. Well, you know, we've told you the story. Daniel is the one who surfaces and convinced that God can, can reveal secrets like that, and he does. And the story's really about a Future picture of what God's going to do on earth. You know, there's a kingdom. It's Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, head of gold. It's the best ever, biggest ever. And by the way, Nebuchadnezzar, there's going to be another one and another one and another one. You're not the best. You're not the best. And ultimately, this big statue is brought down by this enormous rock, and we know that it's the kingdom of God. Nebuchadnezzar is told to, to, by Daniel that all these kingdoms have nothing in comparison to what God's going to do in the future. And we know as Christians, right, we got, the, we got hindsight, uh, 2020 hindsight on this. We know that Jesus is, is that great mountain. He's the rock that destroys all, all kingdoms. There is only one king. Amen? And so we saw that in, in chapter, uh, chapter 2. And, and Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, was massively impressed with Daniel specifically Daniel's God. And if you remember the story, Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and said, man, your God is awesome. But it was your God. Chapter 3, we have another story. Very interesting follow-up to chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar decides to build a statue. 90 feet tall, 9.5 feet wide, gold-plated statue for his own glory. So just stop for a second. He just heard Daniel, through a miracle of God's revelation, this is what's going to happen to kingdoms. And he used a statue to show it. I think Nebuchadnezzar built a statue saying, uh-uh, not on my watch. This is how it's going to end. I'm in charge. He builds this big statue, threatens everybody. If they don't bow down and worship it, he will kill them, right? And you know the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, not us. 
There's only one God, and it's not him, and it's not that, so do what you got to do. So the fiery furnace story. They get thrown into a fiery furnace, and they don't burn. In fact, there's kind of a pre-incarnate picture of Christ in that furnace with the three men, Jesus there, and they come out of the furnace, and there's no smell of smoke, there's no singed hair, there's no burning, and Nebuchadnezzar goes, oh, my gosh, your God is awesome. Who can deliver like your God? Not only does he know dreams, and not only does he know the future, but look at how he can save. And so Nebuchadnezzar was really impressed with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God. Chapter 3. Chapter 4, apparently God has more to teach Nebuchadnezzar. Because the story continues um, with the lessons he needs to learn. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar... um, has to learn this one particular lesson that it's God who rules over men, including him. He does whatever he pleases, and whatever he pleases is good. Look at verse 17 of chapter 4, and you're going to see kind of a kind of head start lesson learned. Like, like uh, Nebuchadnezzar's writing down, these are in his words, he's writing down what it is that God taught him. Now watch this, verse 17, the decision is announced by the messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and he sets them over the lowliest of men. Lesson, there it is, there's the lesson plan, Nebuchadnezzar, and and everything else we're going to discuss today is telling that story. And by the way, let's put a pause here um, before we dig into it. It would be a massive mistake on our part to rush off to just get the story of history of Nebuchadnezzar. Just to understand what God did with him and that man at the time. Because I'm telling you right now, whatever happened to Nebuchadnezzar will happen to every person in this room. Every person who ever lived at some point in time in your life or multiple times in your life. Hasn't it happened? Haven't you learned by effort or failure or whatever that you're not God? Haven't you put your faith and trust in something other than him only to have it disappoint you? Haven't you learned that? Every person has. And if you're sitting here today and going, not me, it's coming. Somewhere in your future, God's going to show up and say, it's not you. You're not sovereign. There's only one king. I'm king. Follow me and live. That's that's what we're going to hear today. So in this story of Nebuchadnezzar, although very cool, isn't just a story about a guy who really struggled with pride. It's about us who struggle with pride and God's absolute passion to pursue the pride in us and drive it out of us at all costs. Because what he knows that we struggle to realize is that what we want most of all is him. Where we're most satisfied is in him. Where we become more like him, he gets more glory, therefore we're more happy. And and God's very, very serious, very serious about his glory, about who he is, about his people. So we need to listen, right? So let's dig into chapter 4. It's an interesting chapter. It's written by Nebuchadnezzar himself. um, And he starts out, it's kind of like a statement of testimony. Look at verse 2 and verse 3. Wonderful words from Nebuchadnezzar. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His, His dominion endures from generation to generation. Sounds unbelievable, doesn't it? Like, whatever's about to happen, no matter what it is, is good news as far as Nebuchadnezzar's concerned because he's, he's kind of putting a parenthesis. There's that statement, and then we're going to see the statement at the end of the chapter, and in between is this wonderful little wrestling match that God wins with Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, by the way, I'm going to tell you this story, and it's an awesome story. What God did with me is an awesome story. And what he did with him, church, 
was pain. And somehow after the pain, Nebuchadnezzar would say, it was good. Isn't that the hardest lesson learned as a Christian? That in the midst of failure and disappointment and somehow the consequences of our own decisions, isn't it the hardest thing in the midst of that pain to ever see it as good? Isn't it? But post, we can look back and go, wow, God, what were you doing? I am not the same person. Because God is more committed to Jesus in you, your transformation, than you would ever be. That's why these things get really specific and really personal, just like it does for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, verse 2 and 3, and then, and, and, and then we hear a story. It's kind of like picking up Nebuchadnezzar's journal. I don't journal. I don't sit around and write down, oh, today I felt blue. I don't do that. Um, Nebuchadnezzar has an unbelievable story embarrassing and humiliating, and we got it. He tells us the story. It's kind of like exploring his, his biggest trouble. It, this chapter four takes place some 20 or 30 years after chapter three. So if, if you're doing your math, Nebuchadnezzar never quite got that God is God and he is not. We've got decades of him thinking he's something he's not, only to find chapter four, God arriving and saying, all right, we're gonna fix this. We're going to take care of it right now. Here we are in chapter 4, and it's a long struggle of pride for Nebuchadnezzar, and it starts with Nebuchadnezzar on top. Look at verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. It couldn't get better for Nebuchadnezzar than he had it right then. He's the ruler of the greatest empire the world has ever seen. He was, if there was a Forbes 500 list, he would be a thousand steps above above that. Um, He was the builder of, of... some call um, the greatest city. Uh, they had a, uh, one of the wonders of the world at the time was the, the uh, hanging gardens of Babylon, supposedly. He built this giant mountain in the middle of Babylon and hanging gardens over it just so, just so that his wife would have this kind of natural air conditioner to sit out her summer days in Babylon. Amazing things. He had huge armies. He had a wall surrounding the city, 85 feet high, 27 feet wide. They would do chariot races across this thing. He was safe, he was secure, and he was satisfied. That's where we find him in verse 4. It can't get it better than this. I have it the way I want it, and life is good. He's at the height of his glory. And now he has a dream in verse 5. I had a dream that made me afraid. <laughs> Problems. God interrupts. Just a dream. He was perplexed. He didn't know what it meant. Um, He struggled. And here was his dream, back down to verse 10. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw white... Uh, While lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground and the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times or seven years pass by for him. 
That's the dream. Two parts. Huge tree, enormous tree, this tree that blesses the earth and feeds all the animals and all the people. And, and then this, this traumatic event where the tree is cut down and somehow the language changes in the middle of the dream and this tree becomes a man and the man loses his mind and acts like an animal. That's the dream. Kind of confusing? You ever had one of those dreams? Don't eat past nine. You'll be all right. Um, <laughs> huge problem. So Daniel, uh, Daniel's called by Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 18. This is a dream that I, the King, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, which is, which is Nebuchadnezzar's name for Daniel, tell me what it means, for, the, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Kind of a, like a pagan way of referring to the Holy Spirit. Clearly, Daniel, God blesses you, and God's in you. And what you say and what you do is different than everybody else. So I'm coming to you, and, and, and I believe that, that God can tell you what this dream is, and he does. Look at verse 19. Then Daniel was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. That, that phrase, greatly perplexed for a time in Aramaic, li- literally means um, stupefied for an hour. There, there is something about this dream. Daniel knew immediately what it meant, and he was either one, afraid like crazy to tell the king what was about to happen to his kingdom, or two, maybe Nebuchadnezzar was close to Daniel, and Daniel close to Nebuchadnezzar, that he was compassionate and didn't want to break the dude's heart. Either way, there was something going on in understanding what God was about to do with Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel thought, oh, man, this is not going to be fun. This, this isn't going to be a lot of fun. So... He interprets the dream. Look at verse 19 again, all the way to verse 27. My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies. And it's meaning your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. You've become great and strong and your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion exceeds the distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump and bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times, seven years will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be, destroy, will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. You can see why Daniel was a little stru- struggling a little bit with uh, telling Nebuchadnezzar, man, serious disappointments coming your way. The most humiliating experience a man, a king, um, could go through. And so he interprets the dream. I want you to notice a particular word in verse 24, if you would. And and if you're a a circler, a highlighter in your Bible, look at it in verse 24. It's a big word. 
It matters a lot to what we learn here. Seven times will pass by for you until, or you have ESV, it says till you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over you. That word is seriously important to us. Because sometimes we get the impression in our experience of God dealing with our sin that there will be no end in sight. There will be no let up. That somehow God is trying to crush us. And here's what you need to know, church, just like he did with Nebuchadnezzar, to bring him to faith and understanding. God leans on us until. It's discipline, not punitive. God is not an angry God towards his people. He's a loving father. And just like fathers sometimes spank. And just like fathers sometimes ground, and just like fathers cramp the style of their rebellious children, God does the same thing to us. So I don't know where you are, I don't know where you are in your story, I don't know what you're dealing with, but I know this, we all struggle with pride. And so your story, you might just go, oh my gosh, and it's just flooding onto you right now. Okay, that's good, that's Holy Spirit stuff. And he's revealing to you where you are out of line with him, And maybe God has already started the process of refining you and giving you all the disappointment that your, quote, unquote, human sovereignty can offer you. And you're thinking you can't make it. Well, we're going to have like a so what in a minute. And it will all be about this. God will do it until he's done. And when he's done, you'll be more like him. Do you understand, church? That's his intention. Look at verse 28. The dream is fulfilled Now, by the way, verse 28 to verse uh, 33 is the part that uh, Nebuchadnezzar didn't write because he's busy being a cow. Um, So he had to have Daniel step in and fill in the gaps. But this is what happens. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. He said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Interesting, the words were still on his lips when the voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed to you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven years will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with dew from heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. This is not fictitious. This really happened. Nebuchadnezzar in his stubborn, arrogant, godlike pride, God said, this is, what's, this is what we gotta do to teach the lesson. And so here's the most noble, the greatest king ever, the greatest empire, and now we've got him acting like a cow. Um, I want you to notice something really important here. Verse 29, 12 months later. Now, I'm telling you, if I was God, it would have said 12 seconds later um, because that's amazing patience. Amazing patience, not, not only the 30 years of rebellion against God, but, but after, after Daniel said, listen, maybe you can just repent. Maybe, Nebuchadnezzar, you could just stop now and recognize there's a king and it's not you. Maybe you could do that and nothing. Obviously, Daniel's warning had no impact. The king had 12 months to change. It wouldn't change. Maybe, maybe he didn't believe Dan. Maybe he didn't think these things applied to him. Maybe he had excuses. Maybe he justified his attitude. Um, after all, maybe he had this giant mirror in his room and he just sit there and go, look at me. Why would I worry about that? I got no issues. And then the then this big moment comes in verse 30. Is this not the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my man? You notice all the pronouns in there? 
Way too, uh, way too many. And, and just a couple points I want to make. Don't, don't ever talk like that. That's crazy talk, right? To ever take glory for yourself. By the way, and if you do, you, you better brace yourself because that, that's the stuff that God deals with. To, to have an attitude like Nebuchadnezzar did, God is serious about, uh, not Psalm, but Isaiah 42. This is God's words. Listen, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Nebuchadnezzar, when you carry glory for yourself, when you think this is all about you, when you think you established your kingdom, if you think that you're this, I don't share that stuff. There's only one glorious in all the universe, and it's not us. And when we try to take that for ourselves, God says, that's mine. I'm coming for what's mine. And he deals with Nebuchadnezzar. Seven years of insanity, seven years of unbelievable, unbelievable humiliation. Right? One moment he's standing on the palace deck. He's looking over his kingdom going, wow, aren't I awesome? I'm a great man. And the next thing, he's running around like a cow. He's mooing at the stars. He's doing everything else a cow would do. Um, And by the way, he can't keep his secret. They don't park him in some room in the palace and keep it hidden from everyone. He's running around the neighborhood naked like a cow. His hair is going long. Everyone knows the humiliation is exposed. His, his inability, everyone sees. That's that's interesting point. Um, it's also interesting interesting to me that God's consequence for that kind of pride is insanity, because after all, pride is spiritual insanity, because pride says, "I'm like God." Not that you ever have to formulate the sentence. It's when you think his commands don't apply to your story or that he doesn't know enough to deal precisely with you or that one about, um, you know, the one about being faithful and loyal and stuff and you go, well, it's not easy, so that one doesn't apply to me. The the, the commands of God to deal with all those things that we have a tendency to keep on our own, our little secrets, you know, what we do with our money and what we do with our time and all that stuff and and you think it doesn't apply to you. God, God cares deeply about that stuff. And pride is that spiritual insanity, so it's, it's probably no wonder that God made him actually crazy. Well, we're going to deal with pride more a, a little bit later in the, in the so what part of this sermon, but let's go on. Let's look at seven years later, verse 34. Here's what happens. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Amazing lesson learned right there, folks. Uh, there's a phrase I want you to notice in, in uh, verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar raised my eyes towards heaven. I, I think this is the first time Nebuchadnezzar ever looked up. And I'm not talking about raising his head physically. I'm talking about looked up, you know? Like every Christian always has to do when we're in our 
sin and inability when we look up. It's kind of like Jesus said at the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's where the gospel starts for sinners. When you realize you can't, when you realize you're guilty, when you realize you're dead in your transgressions and sins and you can do nothing about it, it always starts going, I can't do it. You look up, you look up. And for the first time, Nebuchadnezzar, he looks up and, and his, his perspective changes completely. For decades, he thought it was about him, his glory, his kingdom. He thought of his position and his army and his city, who he was. And the outcome was insanity. And then he looked up. And what happens when he looks up? Grace and restoration. Do you see it, church? I mean, there's a reality that happens for Nebuchadnezzar, but a story that happens for all people who know Jesus. We can't. We really are perpetual losers. We really are. Even when you want to, even when you set down rules and parameters, even when you make verbal vows and commitments, you struggle to keep it, don't you? And so here's all the hope the sinner ever has, just like Nebuchadnezzar, look up. Look up and call it what God calls it. That's called confession. Just call it what God calls it. I can't. I'm not king. I can't fix this. I can't be good enough. I can't be religious enough. I can't try enough. I can't succeed long enough. I can't pray hard enough. I can't do it, God. And when you look up, he becomes your king. And he comes to the rescue for his people, and he liberates you and brings back your spiritual sanity. As opposed to you thinking you can do anything apart from him, he arrives and says, I'll do everything through you. Do you see that, church? Do you get it? And that's truth for us, just like it was for Nebuchadnezzar. First time ever, he looked up. He got grace. And he recognized the truth. There's only one God, and he's not God, and God does whatever he wants, and everything God wants is good. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn. That's what we need to learn. I don't know what your story is. I don't know what you think is too much. I don't know what you think is not fair of God to do to you or control in you. But somewhere in the process, if you're, a, if you're a child of the king, he will keep coming and keep coming and keep coming until you realize that he is God, he does what he wants, and what he wants is good, always good. And sometimes we get so narrowed on those little things, just like Nebuchadnezzar. What if all he talked about was the seven years? What if all he talked about was the humiliation of looking like a cow in front of the kingdom? What if that's all he talked about? Then he wouldn't have how he started. It's my pleasure to tell you. And he wouldn't finish like, hey, God is God. He's the king. I'm not. We got to get our perspective back. Let me finish with a couple of observations that you can leave here with today. Some of these you're going to think are no-brainers, but nonetheless... You can't win a power struggle with God. You can't win. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't win. Couldn't build a statue big enough. Couldn't outthink him. Couldn't outmaneuver God. You can't win a power struggle with God. You are not sovereign. He is sovereign. And, and I say that and you go, well, okay, I know I'm not God. I don't have any problem with that. But come on, let's be honest with each other. When you try to control your circumstances to such a degree you control other people, you're truly not believing that. You try to have other people revere you. You don't want to look small. You don't want to act like a servant because acting like a servant means people look down on you. You don't want to look down on you. You want, you want to matter to people. And you have idols of others all over your life. 
that's the same thing as Nebuchadnezzar was struggling with, that pride. I made a list of, um, it's not an exhaustive list, it was just what came to me. I, I, I wrote down, how does pride affect us? Like, what does it do? Because I think sometimes it's so common to man, it's like uh, not that big a deal. And because everybody has it, and you see it in everybody, even people you love, we kind of cut each other slack on it. But, but watch, and, and you're probably going to see yourself in some of these things, and more than likely, because you have a hard time seeing pride in you, you're definitely going to see it in how other people have treated you. But, but listen to the, some of the outcomes of pride. It makes us victims. We can't see our sin. It tells us that we have a right to sin, that there are certain sins that are acceptable because, after all, that's unfair to me. It blinds us from seeing the hurt that our sin causes other people. It makes us the exception to God's rule. It makes us unaccountable to others. It makes us people pleasers, not God pleasers. It makes us deaf and blind to our sin. It makes us liars and it steals our peace. Is that insanity or what? Listen. Chapter 4, verse 17 is the lesson. The Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he pleases. And he sets them over the lowliest of men. God is sovereign over you. He's sovereign over you. Any pride is an anti-God state of mind and God's coming after it in his children. He will deal with it. Let me give you another thing to think about as we leave. God's discipline is painful because he's cutting away the sin that separates us from him. Let me ask you something, church. How serious does God take his relationship with you? A little bit? Like just a little bit, maybe, or he thinks about it on Sunday like we do. He shows up here at 1030 precisely, and he cares deeply about what you're thinking about him right now, but maybe tomorrow when you're busy making that deal and making sure the deal comes out your way so that you get the profit from it. Do you think God cares about you then? Don't be afraid. These answers might humiliate us, but they're at least... Right. Yes, he cares. He cares all the time. And God cares so deep, deeply for us. And his effort in our life as a loving father brings discipline is painful because however deeply rooted that sin of pride and self is, has to be cut away and you're always going to feel it. You're always going to feel it. And just a principle to, to hang your hat on Whenever we violate the principles or the specific law of God, it's called rebellion according to the scriptures. And rebellion always equals pain. Do you believe that? Now, I, wish, I wish it was something else. Like rebellion always equals something good or rebellion sometimes equals pain. But here's what you need to know. Rebellion always equals some kind of pain. Even if it is the disappointment of getting the idol you thought would make you happy only to have it disappoint you. That's painful, isn't it? Isn't it? Or it could be something like really overt sin. You know, I, I've got four sons. You raise kids. Everybody in here probably had a, a child or whatever. And when they're little, you go, hey, listen, I want to teach you this principle of rebellion and pain, so when you don't do what I ask you to do, we're going to swatch your little hiney, right? 
And here you get the idea, the equation, rebellion, pain. But if you don't teach your kid, they go to school, and maybe the principal or teacher says, hey, listen, because you're a punk, you're going to experience pain. And maybe they don't teach them anything, and let's say they get followed by a guy with a blue light in his car, and suddenly they discover from our government that rebellion equals pain. Or maybe they end up in jail experiencing the ultimate lesson, rebellion always equals pain. Or maybe it doesn't go that far for you. Maybe you can keep it undercover. Maybe it's just that you don't choose to love your wife as Christ loved the church, and she leaves you because you show yourself as the weirdo you are, and you have a broken home. And the broken home isn't anybody's fault but yours. And all the ramifications and ripple effects of kids being hurt and angry and all that stuff, rebellion equals Yeah, if you don't say it, it doesn't make it go away. It's still there. (laughs) Always. And so in this huge picture of God loving us eternally in Jesus, making us and transforming us into the image of his dear son, Jesus, he will do whatever it takes to transform us over our lifetime. And because sin is dark and because it lies to us and because pride is so deceptive, we're going to experience pain. I wish I, could, I wish I could do something really funny right now so you'd feel better about it, but it, it, that's what it is. It's that ugly. Just like you, when you love your kids, say, I don't want you to go to jail. I'm going to spank you. I don't want you to have everybody think you're just stupid, so I'm going to discipline you. Our father looks at us and says, I've got a finish line for you. It's holiness. It's completeness. It's transformation. I'm going there. I'm going there. Nothing is going to stop me. Nothing. Not what you think is most important. Not what you have given your life away to. Nothing. So I'm coming. I'm coming. The gracious thing about God is he doesn't come after us in every category all at the same time. It's one little move at a time. One little exposure. And you grow so much and you realize so much and you don't, you fail to realize that there's a whole other bucket of stuff he hasn't even got to yet. God uses pain. Here's the third thing. God's discipline lasts until we learn what he wants us to learn. You might be sitting here today feeling like God's really working you over, and you want to know, how long is this thing going to go on? Answer, as long as it takes. As long as it takes. But here's a promise. So if you're feeling a little on the overwhelmed edge of this whole thing, he'll never shake you up one moment longer than is necessary. He won't. That's his promise to us. To work in us and transform us, but not to crush us, not to do us harm. So if you're feeling the weight of God's precision cuts in your life and pride, well, hang in there because he's still working and he won't, he won't crush you. So let me give you a verse to hang on to if you're one of those sitting in that position right now. 1 Peter 5, 6. It tells us very clearly, if you're in that difficult time, wait on God and humble yourself and in due time he will what? Lift you up. Wait on God, humble yourself, and he will lift you up. Here's the last thing, and we're done. If God didn't spare his own son to gain your salvation, then he won't spare anything else to get your attention. Did you hear that? So, we'll back up and do a lesson on the gospel again. Here we are, all of us the same, all of us sinners, all of us fall short. We all have our own particular bent towards evil, but we have, our, we have our issues, and it separates us from a holy God. God left heaven 
took on flesh, lived a perfect life, bore the weight of the judgment of a holy God for the sin that we've committed against him and granted to us righteousness to make a relationship. He spared nothing. The most valuable thing he has, he gave his own life to make certain that we'd be saved and his. Do you think he would stop there? If he would give everything of himself to secure your salvation, don't you think he would spare nothing else to get your attention? So if you're sitting here today and you've got all these things, and I always feel this way because I've, I've had friends who, who, hey, this story comes out and that secret comes out and that issue is revealed. If you're sitting here today thinking that all these particular pieces, individual pieces of your story are somehow acceptable to God, well, you better just open up your hands and get ready because God will take whatever he has to to get your attention. Some of you know what that's like. Some of you could do a way better job right now getting up and doing the application than I could because you've got this story that looks like prison, looks like divorce, looks like loss of kids, looks like this, looks like that, and God did a good thing with it. Only God could take our message that we make and produce righteousness in his people. Only God could do that. So I want you to just... Feel God's pursuit and affections for you. That if you've got something out there, you're committing your heart and your devotion to some idol, some person, some thing, some status, whatever it is, and it robs you of the great, well, God's going to fix that. In his time, he's going to fix it. And it's his love that does that. Do you believe that, church? The gospel is a wonderful story. It's woven from the beginning to the end of all this book that we read. He died to bring those who were far off close to him. He died to bring life and salvation and ultimate satisfaction in him. He alone, according to scripture, is satisfying. He alone is worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. All glory is his and he won't share it with us. Do you believe that? He's committed to transforming us. Therefore, the question we asked in the very beginning, we need to answer. How far will God go to get his message across? Let me give you another way to think about it. He went all the way to the cross. Nothing will stop. Let's pray. God, we thank you that... Um, that you are a loving, faithful God. That you have pursued us and pursued us and pursued us. And you won't stop. You've made a promise to transform us into the image of your son. And you always keep your promises. So God, we all confess. We're, we're in our flesh all proud. But God, you won't tolerate us worshiping another. So as you transform us, as you deal with us, as you sift us and discipline us, God, I pray that we would learn our lessons quickly and we would look up and find restoration and grace. Amen.